up, guys? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Brandon Quidham. So if you're deep into the Bitcoin space, if you hang out on Bitcoin Twitter, you probably know who Brandon is already. He is the guy that wrote the Medium article that kind of burst onto the scene, a several-part series, uh, starting with Bitcoin as a decentralized organism. So in this series of Medium articles, Brandon was uh, drawing an analogy between Bitcoin and mycelium. And uh, I think owing to the fact that there's a lot of truth in that analogy, and then also, of course, just how well Brandon articulated that, the examples and the imagery he used, I think it really made a lot of sense to a lot of people, uh, including myself. And I'm a self-professed uh, mycophile. I do talk about mushrooms, particularly of the magic variety on the show sometimes. And so uh, finding another Bitcoiner that was also uh, really fascinated by mycelium and mushrooms and then combining the two in such a profound way I was super excited to get the opportunity to speak with Brandon. So in this discussion we talk about a lot of course we talk about his writing there's still part four to come of this four-part series on on mycelium and Bitcoin so I'm very much looking forward to that we got a little bit of a teaser on that we did break into the the psychedelic aspect of of mycelium and mushrooms a little bit we talked about sovereignty of consciousness we discussed the role of analogy and in particular the one that Brandon has made uh, in terms of trying to understand complicated things more easily we talked about how instructive nature can be in terms of finding design solutions and lots of other uh, interesting stuff i really really enjoyed this conversation unfortunately we only had about an hour and 10 minutes for the further discussion portion i know i could have uh, spoken with brandon for at least three or four hours so hopefully we get a chance to do it again in the future if you're not currently following brandon or if you haven't yet read his medium articles i highly recommend you drop everything and do that at your next available opportunity all right guys that's it enjoy the show let's do it all right so i know we're going to not want to uh, stop once we get rolling and uh, we got an hour and a half so why don't we just dive in but uh, yeah thanks for doing this i know you've been doing the rounds lately i listen to a lot of podcasts and video interviews and stuff in preparation for this so uh yeah I've, I, I, <laughs> this is a funny story but i was in bed last night right and like, like i said on twitter i'm super super excited to speak with someone like you you know because this is kind of two of my worlds converging two of the things that i find extremely meaningful and uh, I was lying in bed last night, just like sleep, sleep, sleep. And it reminded me of like being a kid at Christmas time. We were just like, come on, I just want to wake up the next morning. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. That's fantastic. man. I feel the same way listening to some of your pods. Like, okay, we have a lot of crossovers here. Yeah. So what I wanted to do in terms of getting started is maybe just look at this from how interesting the phenomenon of your recent story right because you i mean it's such a funny thing that you say hey this one thing that i think is really interesting and cool and meaningful has a lot of similar attributes to this other thing that i think is really cool and meaningful and then you write about that analogy and it gets you know tremendously positive feedback you know it gets shared and people really appreciate that you put the time and thought and effort into explaining and making that analogy and i thought to myself like what you know like why why do we care so much that someone says hey this one thing is like this other thing and i think one is the the kind of um we're all so terrified of the information asymmetry of bitcoin right like we really want to all be as up to date as possible and if there's another angle that somebody has brought to light, we really want to jump on it and, and try to understand it. But I think more, more than that, it's analogy and metaphor graphs onto things that perhaps are technical or complicated in, in various ways. And it allows us to investigate it or push our curiosity through it um, in perhaps a more easy way. And I think the reason why that's important is because if the if the match, if the graph, if the analogy is apt enough, if it's accurate enough, then we can take insights that we gain from the kind of more easy exploration of the narrative and the metaphor and bring it back and apply it to the more complicated technical thing that we're trying to understand more. So in this case, I would say it's like, well, we all want to try to understand not only the technical components of Bitcoin more, but 
the impact, the meaning of it, what it actually, what it actually represents. And if we can graft a, a suitable, apt metaphor or analogy onto that, and then look at all the things in that analogy that we can, we, if we, we can explore that analogy and then bring some stuff back so that we can expand our understanding, then I think that's perhaps why we all value the, this work that people like yourself have, are, are doing so much. But what, what's your take on that phenomenon? Yeah, definitely. And I, I heard you describe the um, information asymmetry, sort of this fear that Bitcoiners have, because no matter when you got in, you feel like you got in too late. And if you only read that one more article that would have convinced you <laughs> two years prior, you'd be so rich that whatever, you need to stage a boating accident or whatever. Right, right. And I, I think that's a fascinating thought. And I never thought about it that way. But there is this insatiable appetite for content in the space. And it could be partially looking back like, hey, I made a mistake, I should have learned this stuff. Um, but I also think there's another angle here. And that is that um, Bitcoiners, or if we even open it up to the greater space, um, what I've noticed is that most people are hyper curious, they're all self learners, they're always the guy who stayed up late, digging into holes in the internet and trying to find out cool things. And so now all of a sudden you self select for all those people and you put them together and we just want to uh, you know, intellectually stimulate ourselves. And Bitcoin is the most intellectually stimulating things I've ever come across. Um, I'm notorious for falling down rabbit holes. And usually once I get to like 90, 95% understanding, my interest falls way back. So it's like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to dedicate the rest of my life to go to 100% here. You know, I already got the high of the learning curve. And, and Bitcoin, I find that the more I learn, the less I think I know. And that's really humbling and it keeps me coming back to the well uh, more and more. So that's just kind of point one on how I see information. Um, another thing with metaphor and stories is humans don't really grasp or retain information, just data, but we retain stories. And I think that's just uh, a remnant of our evolutionary biology history where oral tradition was how we learn and how we remember things all the way back to our, our holy texts from name or religion. Those are just good stories that were originally passed down at the fire that were so good and so meaningful, even if they're allegories or whatever, but the stories persist so much that they've survived pre-internet, right? Pre-hard drive. And so, yeah, I think that that angle of storytelling is really important. Maps to metaphor also. And then the other angle I think is that biology is intuitive. We are biology. We come from biology. And so when you try to use biology as analogy, you, you right away you get it. And I definitely took some uh, leaps of faith sort of personifying mycelium, right? It doesn't think the way that I tried to weave these stories. Like it's not, yeah, it's not exactly a human. Just like Bitcoin's not exactly a person human. It doesn't have wants and needs. Um, mycelium is closer to that. But, you know, you make a story and people remember. Right. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating thing. The the all the different narratives and analogies and metaphors that are happening in the Bitcoin space right now, and it's so great that there's there's it, like you said, it's self-selecting and bringing all these like naturally curious, naturally questioning people together, and some question down a technical track, some question down a narrative and metaphor, some you know, in, in all different capacities. And, you know, because as you said, you know, how the humans learned evolutionarily and, you know, how we retain information. I mean, it is through narrative and story primarily, right? And not only is that how we learn, but it seems that that's how we, that's what things become. Things become the narrative that we, that we, that we create around them. And so, it, and almost at the exclusion of whatever technical or physical reality they might have. I mean, what, what we be believe it to be as a narrative in our mind is what it becomes, and that forms the basis of how we engage in it. And I think that's probably another reason why this whole narrative smashing is happening around Bitcoin, and we're also eager to, to consume up these, these analogies and metaphors, because we're all trying to determine as accurately as possible what this is, and then how, therefore, we're supposed to engage in it, and then, then what, therefore, it becomes. And then that's the evolutionary process of this thing. Definitely. And I would also say um, the way our egos work is if we have an idea 
and we like the idea, we identify with the idea, some part of our ego is attached to this idea, then that's sort of what we cling on to, right? That's the narrative that we, that we hold on to. And each person comes to Bitcoin with their own perspective. So if you are a pro-environment at all costs perspective, you're going to see Bitcoin as proof of works boiling the oceans. You know, if you're a hyper-capitalist, anarchist, Austrian, you're going to see, wow, uh, we have the first example of hard money incarnate. This is really important, right? And so all those different perspectives come sloshing in. And yeah, then the narratives have their little battles or the, the marketplace for ideas. I think Trace Mayer calls it. I like that. Right. Yeah. And, well, that's another great point. And it, it, it's that all these different narratives will appeal to different people in different ways. And why that's interesting is because the, the narrative creates that kind of gravitational pull. It piques interest. It, it, it communicates on the, the plane that that person is on. You know, so what, what's interesting about your work, and maybe you can just comment if people have approached you subsequent to, to writing this stuff, but saying that like people that might have been um, not interested or critical of something like Bitcoin previously because they're not into monetary history or economics or they're environment, environmentally conscious, as you mentioned. But now that you've given them a narrative that pull, like that has a gravitational pull on the things that they care about or the perspective from which they come or the way in which they communicate, maybe you've opened the door for them. Has, has that been your experience in terms of feedback you've gotten? Yeah, definitely. I think that was um, quite surprising. Actually, two surprises. One, I didn't think Bitcoiners were going to latch on to such a wacky idea when I was first developing these concepts. And there wasn't really much chatter about that. So when it went and all of a sudden Bitcoiners are chirping about it and now people are taking these ideas, making them their own. I'm learning about originally my thoughts from other people who take it a new angle. It's amazing for me to get all that coming back. Yeah. Um, so number surprise number one. Surprise number two is I've gotten countless DMs and message on, uh, on channels saying, uh, my girlfriend never understood Bitcoin and then I described it this way, or my mom, or my dad, or sort of the what you'd expect, the archetypal last person to understand latched onto this idea. And that to me is amazing. Because if you think about Bitcoin ecosystem, mostly we just pander to each other <laughs> and maybe th throw lava few grenades at the Ethereans or whatever, right? Um, but I, and I've been saying this forever. We need to have starting points, funnels for each archetypal person. Right. Like we need to have the millennials guide to Bitcoin, the gold bugs guide to Bitcoin and just segment it off because and I'm sure most people can relate when you try to evangelize to your friends, family or someone you meet at the coffee shop. You usually miss you fall right on your face talking about some crazy ideas. But if you ask questions up front and you know their starting point, then all of a sudden I guarantee there's three hot buttons that works for them. And I think it also speaks to the fact that we don't even know what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin might be alien technology. This this thing is new. It's wholly new. And I think Ralph Merkel describes it best as a digital organism. You know, lives and breathes on the internet. That which is an amazing paper, by the way. But considering it is that, and we barely understand it, then it also makes sense that we should humble ourselves and say we don't know. Here's how I see it. Here's how I understand it. We're sort of in this self-discovery process. And where that will take us, I don't know. Um, I like Jeremy Welch from Casa's quote where he says, we're just right on the edge of this thing. Yeah. That one stuck with me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, again, that's partially why there's so much energy and enthusiasm and interest in pursuing these narratives when they emerge you know, through writers like yourself because everyone's kind of wondering. You know, it reminds me, this, people will probably hate this, uh, this example because Facebook isn't the most popular company in the world but you know in the movie the social network when uh they're in their dorm room and they're talking about like raising funds or whatever zuckerberg just says like no no no, we can't do any of that yet because like we don't know what it is we we, we don't know what it is really you know like we know we've launched this website and people can see pictures of, of their friends and stuff but like we don't know what that means really so we you know we shouldn't be out there you know we don't want to we don't want to say that we what it is or that we know what it is prior to understanding it better. And I think that's part of the reason why we're all so eager to consume these narratives, these analogies, this stuff, and put them through our, our own meat grinder and try to see if they're valid and if they're not and try to allow it to give us more insight into you know what this thing really is. And one of the, the 
you know, I, I have a very poorly thought out and even more poorly articulated thought about Bitcoin. There's a lot of religious analogies to Bitcoin, right? And, um, you know, the, the ultimate apex of religion or spirituality is, is some concept of truth, right? And the truth is very difficult to define, but it's this pure thing that probably can transmute itself into everything. You know, a real genuine truth can be transmuted through all things and represented in all things. Um, and, you know, I'm taking a bit of license here and the people and only the hardcores will probably be, you know, nodding their head. But, you know, Bitcoin is starting to appear to be something really truthful and pure. And as a result, I'm starting to see that a lot of analogies work. Some fit better than others. And I absolutely love yours. And I think, you know, attribute for attribute, it really lines up well. But, you, you know, you can compare so many things to something that has kind of a, you know, a truthful center. And I feel like that's what's happening. But if you want to describe Bitcoin as a virus, as a plant, as the sun, as a religion, as a philosophy, as a mycelial network, you know, it works, it works, it works, it works. You can find a way to, to make it fit. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think truth is uh, an interesting point. I think that's fundamentally what it does. It, it sort of crowdsources truth. And it's not objective truth. It, it's just relative truth. It's sort like, I'm not sure who wrote this. Uh, I'm forgetting the author, but it's essentially Bitcoin is a decentralized clock. And all it, each block is one unit of time. And all you can know for certain is that the order of operations, unit by unit, block by block, is objectively true. And you can measure that down to the thermodynamic truth of, um, you know, dollars spent or hashes spent, energy consumed, however you want to look at it. Um, I think that's fascinating because that is sort of the truth. You're paying all this upfront cost to have the most fundamental unit of truth. And if we have that, what can we build on top of it? And I think that's where things start to get really weird because in, in some sense, Bitcoin is just a, a secure, cryptographically secure messaging system, right? That's really all it is. Right. But then you look at it from another angle, those messages we now value, okay? Now we can measure in Bitcoin time instead of uh, our atomic clocks. Um, you know, what, what else could it be? I have no idea. Yeah, and I, I think that's the thing that, that like you said, you, in the rabbit holes you've gone down in the past, you go 95% of the way and think, okay, I mostly, mostly got this thing. But with the Bitcoin one, it's almost like, you know, if it's a, if it's a, a star collapsing in on itself, it's, it, it's keeping on going down. So, you, you know, you got to keep following it with it to, to, to keep trying to see how it morphs and change and how the understanding changes. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to keep up, but I think the reason why we're all here is because it's, you know, it's such a compelling intellectual pursuit because it, it seems to have no end, not only in, its, in the ways in which we can relate it to other things and understand it better, but it, as you just mentioned, like all those, those different details of it that aren't the initially apparent use cases, right? We take that, you know, the, the messages, as you say, and we say they have value because there's a limited supply and we need a way to exchange and send, you know, and store value, and this is a great initial use case. But yeah, perfect example. Like, how will we realize the value of a universal clock in the future, and how will we use that? You know, it's that's why, that's why that's why we're all here. I also one one more point to add on to that in terms of intellectual pursuits. Um, I, I think that most of the the controversy, the infighting, the you know, general tribalism that we see in the space is because people get to a certain level of understanding and then they say, oh, I got it. I know what Bitcoin is. And they made up their mind. And then two years later, or they just peek around the other corner and Bitcoin's actually changing. It's different or they didn't fully grasp it. And you can see this with examples like fast, cheap payments, Right. That was an early narrative that dragged on and led to the apex of the, the Segwit battle. And so I think if everyone took a healthy dose of uh, humble, we would maybe not make up our minds so quickly and realize that this thing is bigger and more interesting than we thought. Stranger than we can suppose. <laughs> Terrence Sorry. McKenna. 
That's right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I want, I want to get into that a bit later. But, you know, Bitcoin has been um, related to various forces of nature or kind of an organizing, organized in a similar way to nature itself, you know. And I, I think I've heard you discuss, um, you know, the patterns in nature and how they repeat themselves over and over. And I think this is one of the things that makes Bitcoin compelling and perhaps why people relate it to being an organism because I agree. I think when you, on every scale of nature, you see very similar patterns. And now they may not be apparent unless you exit one scale and look from another scale to a lower or higher scale. And then that's where you see the the patterns. And so it kind of lends itself to understanding nature in a sort of fractal way, you know, in which one pattern pattern nestled within another nestled within another. And you kind of ask yourself, well, why does it occur that way? You know, both, both naturally as in the natural world, I mean, humans are natural, but both in the non-human world and somehow in the way that we take ideas from our head and, and, and create them in the physical world, that that pad, those patterns seem to be coming through us as well in the things that we create. And I think Bitcoin is one, it's, it's very apparent with Bitcoin that we've created another organism, force of nature, whatever you want to call it, that has these similar patterns as we find on various other scales in nature. And one very perhaps overly simplified example is you make the connection with the mycelial network, obviously. And then if you look at the way that the Bitcoin network is distributed with, if you could visualize it, you look at the mycelial networks, you look at nodes on the Bitcoin network, or even now starting with the lightning network, you look at the deep space image of how, you know, galaxies and stars are together. You look at the the neuronal connections in the brain and you look at four or five of these pictures and you say, that looks like the same organizing principle to me. And, you know, I don't really have a point here. It's just interesting that we continue <laughs> to, that these very fundamental things continue to be represented in the same sort of patterns. Definitely. Yeah, you, you bring up a lot of good points there. And I, I think the one uh, that sticks out the most for me um, mycelium is just the one that I understand the most. I think it's the most easy to grasp with relation to Bitcoin. But the, the most fundamental thing here is that this network archetype persists. It's really old. It's billions and billions of years old. And so what that speaks to to me is a fundamental organizing principle of nature. Mm-hmm. And these networks persist because they're effective. And Okay, we we go zoom way out. You see the the super uh, super cl- galaxy clusters. Linnea is organized this way. Dark energy, dark matter is organized this way. And then you get down to all the human times, human scale stuff. And now all of a sudden, humans are creating technologies that mimic this network archetype. And I think the internet is um, the easiest one to grasp. People have compared mycelium to the internet. Terence McKenna as well. And yeah, we just create this entity that is um, is of us, but it's not really us. It's it almost has its own essence. And the the internet is so robust because this network archetype is so robust. We're just mimicking nature. It's essentially biomimicry in a really effective scale. And when you look at the internet, you really can't kill the internet, right? It's too ingrained, and there's so much surface area. And the same is with Bitcoin. It's infiltrating all aspects. You can't kill it. And every day that goes by, it infiltrates more and more. And it speaks to the robustness, the anti-fragility, um, the, just the ability for this thing to persist. And it can pay people to do its bidding. It hijacks our consciousness and employs all these volunteers who drop out of their careers to go just read Bitcoin articles. <laughs> Like, it's insane. The, the intellectual horsepower here is mind-blowing. I've met some of my favorite people on the planet in the last two years just by talking about Bitcoin and bumping into Bitcoiners. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a tremendous phenomenon, man. Everything you just said, I, I totally agree with. And, you know, I thought about when people criticize it or when, when quote-unquote competitors try to emerge, you know, even if they can't recreate many of the different attributes and organizing principles that you just mentioned. But like, I often think 
you realize that like the people contributing to Bitcoin, whether they're developers, educators, all this kind of stuff, most of them, at least at the beginning, did it for like they is voluntary. They were like, this thing needs to exist and develop, and I have a certain skill set, and I'm going to devote it to it because I feel like it's right and good and truthful and meaningful. You can't. I mean, you can't fuck with that. You, I don't know. How, like, if you're a if you're a hierarchical company, you know, you you a typical organized company and project you just you can't outlast that even if you're in in some ways better or more competent i mean because that thing will just i mean it will be around forever if as long as people continue to uh think it's meaningful and believe that it can be better and and they can they can contribute to it i mean it's absolutely stunning the the i guess the kind of social pull that it has that it's just pulling these people in and saying contribute to me, build me, blah, 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 and I'll reward you, you know? <laughs> and totally. not, just, not just financially, but like what is so many people around the world today, myself previously being one of them, find themselves in, you know, jobs that are varying degrees of meaningless to them. Now, some are, find themselves in ones that are a bit more fun. Others find themselves in one that because of the level of compensation, they're willing to, you know, stomach it or Whatever the case may be, but there, you know, I've, I've held this opinion for a long time. No matter how healthy I was physically, no matter how you know well screwed on my head was, no matter psychedelic practices, nothing, nothing is more important than waking up in the morning and thinking, "I'm excited for today." I mean, that is it. You know, that is the ultimate goal. And if you can engage in something. That delivers that to you notwithstanding of course it's going to be hard and challenges and pressure and stuff but if you can at least wake up and say like man i'm excited to engage today that's that is the ultimate goal and the ultimate gift and i just i'm a, i'm a bit of a hyperbole here but i don't think too much to say that a lot of people that are starting to find their way to bitcoin and starting to find a way in which to contribute even again if if no compensation initially um it's an amazing social phenomenon that it's 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 giving that to people. It's providing that opportunity uh, to start changing how they live and interact with the life and the work that they do. I mean, and that's going to have so many so many beneficial effects. Totally, it's a it's a rallying cry for revolutionaries, right? The millennials are probably the the most uh, predominant group here. And we were sold this bill when we were younger that participation matters. You get to follow your dreams. You're all special. Go do your thing. And then we go to high school to go to college and we get our jobs. And we're like, wait a minute. We were told life was way cooler than this. I've got <laughs> massive student debt. My boss is an idiot. I don't agree with the company. No one values my opinion. And this is kind of slamming millennials, which I'm a part of. But then we're like, well, that's not good enough. Let's do van life. Let's be digital nomads. Let's get into yoga. Let's essentially buck the trend. Let's push back on what mainstream culture means and try to find meaning elsewhere. And, you know, I spent five years traveling and working digital nomadism, whatever. Um, it's cool. It has benefits, but it doesn't solve these existential problems of meaning. For many people, it makes it worse. Yeah. And so... What Bitcoin is, at least for a lot of people and partially for myself, it's a cause worth fighting for. It, it's, it's enough meaning there that I can latch on to that I do feel like my work is, is important. And it sort of collects disenfranchised brains <laughs> and, you know, puts a rifle in their hand and pats them on the butt and <laughs> sends them off. <laughs> And yeah. we all share that rebel, that rebel spirit, right? The fuck the man, the, you know, whatever. I think a lot of Bitcoiners have that. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And I, I love that, uh, you know, that, that analogy. But I think, I think you're right. You know, I've talked about it a bit on the podcast and I don't fault, I mean, I'm in that category too. And I did that as well. Travel around, you know, try to find meaning in anything else. Like, you know, okay, this isn't working. Where is meaning? Is it in health? Is it in yoga? Is it psychedelics? Is it, you know, relationships? Is it some other form of work? Is it environmentalism? Whatever. And uh, so I don't knock them because they're, it's a noble journey to, to 
extricate yourself from something that you know is not working, that you know is tearing you apart inside, and go on that hero's journey of trying to find something more meaningful. It's just that, you know, in the world, I mean, I, this, is, this, is, this is too much, but in, in the world prior to Bitcoin, it wasn't as obvious what that might be. And, it, and like, of course, we have, I don't mean to insinuate that I don't derive meaning from many other aspects of my life, you know, my friend and family relationships and, you know, my physical, you know, body and other pursuits, but few tick as many boxes as something like Bitcoin and few have the ability to scale that meaning and push it through society and make it available to so many other people as something like Bitcoin. And few have, few represent the degree of kind of the size of the weapon as the analogy you made in society to disrupt a lot of the things that I think we'd all mutually agree are probably need upgrading to put it lightly in society as much as bitcoin you know right? it's fine to focus on the relationships you have in your life and living in a beautiful environment and stuff but that doesn't fix like a lot of the other issues that are that are counter to the things that you you want to see in the world this weapon quote unquote does provide that and i think that's why we're all motivated to engage in it definitely and we also it's it sort of starts with the individual you know if you engage with bitcoin long enough and this has a lot of religious undertones but you you know you start going to communion you you tithe bitcoin for stacking sat saturday and all of a sudden your 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 values um are influenced for many people they report they totally changed their life i don't blow money at the bar anymore i stack sats shifting time preference what how do you value your money how do you value your time these things start to change and so, yeah, there's this feedback loop with Bitcoin where it feels good. You're actually seeing change. You have accountability partners online. And, yeah, whatever little way you can fit in feels valuable. It's and truly, I think, I truly think incredible. It forces you or, you know, g helps you generate clarity around what your unique contribution could be, you know, because... But until you have something that you think is meaningful enough to extract from you your full effort, then you won't really try to determine what your full effort looks like or what it can be. You know, so I think when we encounter those things that, you know, we believe to be meaningful, then we start to ask ourselves, okay, this is serious business now. What is, you know, what gets me off? What's my unique ability talent contribution whatever potential and how do i channel that to plug in or to contribute to this thing and so where you might have been wandering around before or who cares that you know i it's a comfortable job it's a this it's a that i think a lot of people are being being pressed motivated now to say okay i got you know like this thing is is legit as fuck i gotta be I got to be, I got to approach it with, you know, my genuine self and, and my, my best self to be a bit cheesy and how, you know, I'm not going to be a core developer, perhaps I'm not going to be, you know, a writer, perhaps, or, or whatever it is, what can I uniquely contribute or what can I start refining within myself that will allow me to contribute in a meaningful way? And I see that happening throughout the space in diversified ways. And it's fucking awesome. I just, I, I love to see it. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, all right. One thing I wanted to discuss, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in most of the interviews and writing that you've done, you haven't, in the mycelium analogy, you haven't discussed much the psychedelic component of, you know, mushrooms, mycelium. Is that correct? Yeah, I've definitely made some references. I've left, left Easter eggs for those who could find them. <laughs> right. Um, and I would say in the second article, when I talk more about the social layer of Bitcoin, um, I do talk about how um, there are religious tones to Bitcoin and how also there's a lot of religious tones to mushrooms and where ancient man who partnered with mushrooms found themselves in a much better situation. And that could be simply because they make good food or you can, they can be used as medicine to sharpen tools, to transport fire. Um, also, because psychedelic mushrooms do provide evolutionary advantageous tools to humans. Um, the stoned ape theory comes to mind. I'm sure you're quite familiar. 
Um, and, you know, Paul Stamets, I, I saw him speak recently at Burning Man, and he had a nice bit about how um, mushrooms make you, uh, psychedelic mushrooms make you uh, less fearful. And they also make you um, a little bit more courageous and a little bit more community oriented. And those are leadership qualities. And so ancient man also acquired leadership qualities. Their eyesight was better. They found more food. Not to mention the, as people know, higher dose psychedelic experiences open the floodgates to novelty and information starts streaming in. And if you envision man on the sub-Saharan African plains leaving his, his homeland in the trees and all of a sudden downloading new information, that's going to be really helpful in his path towards uh, survival in a changing climate world. And so, yeah, I've sort of dabbled on it. Um, what I was cautious of is I don't want these ideas to be clouded by the judgments that people have surrounding psychedelics. It's a very charged topic. Yeah. Um, I've personally talked about my use in various capacities, but not a lot. Um, but I think that's starting to change. And if we want to jump into that, I'm happy to go on my little rant here. Um, hit, hit me, man. So I think, first of all, if anyone's considering this topic or how to approach it is know that the media stuff is nonsense, right? The information being fed from our media has never really been the whole truth for any topic. So start with a clean slate. When you look at these things, start with an open mind. Humans have been using them for thousands of years. And the main classic psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, mescaline, uh, DMT, they mimic our same neurotransmitters that we have in our body. So essentially nature produces a molecule that looks just like serotonin. It fits lock and key with our brain. They're extremely safe, like a, a 10,000 times safer than aspirin, for example. And so know that they're physically safe for your body. They do change your consciousness in some capacity. Um, you don't see magical things. It's nothing crazy like that. Um, but I, I think we need to just be open about these as tools and approach them for what they are. And you know, if you look all over the place, people are coming out of the psychedelic closet. Um, you know, the Tim Ferrises, the the thought leaders, intellectual leaders that we support um, are all saying that these things have changed their lives for the better, uh, myself included. And yeah, I, I just think that's a good starting point is that they're they're good for your body. And if they're used responsibly, they can be profound tools for change. And, you know, some analogies I like would be uh, it's like a computer reset button. You sort of defrag your mind. You go through all that chatter, that clutter, that unfinished business, and you have time to uh, be introspective and you know, sort of recompartmentalize your life in a way that doesn't have that strong emotional attachment. You don't, you're not a aversion, uh, averting these hard feelings. You can just sit with them and reorganize them. Um, yeah, that's probably a, a good mouthful to start with. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think what's great is that, cause this has been true for, for a long time, but as we know, the sixties happened and there was a lot of fallout from the way in which they were approached during that time. And I don't fault those you know, young people that much because they were coming out of the 40s and 50s. I mean, that was a world that we can't even comprehend in terms of its rigidness, let's say. I mean, the, the world today is a very fluid, accepting, open sort of place. Back then, it was conform pretty much. you know. And so to, to drop this substance into the minds of people back then, you know, I don't fault them too much for for reacting or responding the, the way that they did. But what I love about today is that over the last 20 years, the, the research has reemerged. And little by little, people have been able to conduct this research at really world-class institutions like Johns Hopkins and, and Imperial College London and various other institutions. And it's bringing a, a high degree of scientific rigor and legitimacy to this space which is great because you don't have to be tie-dyed freak saying you spoke to God anymore. You can say, hey, these things are proving to be the most effective substances for treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, anxiety, mood disorders. And that's just a, a really good start. Not saying you have to have those, but it's just saying, look, these things are, are serious business. And you know, further to that, I think 
most people's, if they've you know ever tried psychedelics, they probably tried them in a recreational capacity when they were younger with some friends and had a giggle fest and that sort of thing. And I'm you know I'm not I'm not into that. Um, I think that they should be used very carefully because they do dramatically change your consciousness. So I think they should be used as they have been used historically, which is sacramentally. So if you're going to use something sacramentally, it means you take a lot of care and planning into this experience. You, you be very careful for who and how many people are with you and your environment and all those different considerations because it will untether you from your normal st- consciousness and that can be unsettling. And you need to have as much kind of comfort and confidence going into that experience as possible in order to get the most, most out of it. And it's absolutely not exclusively a wonderful, happy experience. In fact, you know, you hear a lot about bad trips, and I don't, I don't believe in that concept. I think there's resistance. I think that's what a bad trip is, is you're resisting something that's trying to be shown to you or a realization that, you know, that, that you're having. And if you resist it because you believe it's supposed to be otherwise or it's too painful or, or whatever, then that's, you, it's going to be a very difficult time. If you're open to it and say, well, what's behind this? What is this fear all about? What is this anxiety all about? It gives you an opportunity to go beyond the veil and try to really see causes for that. Now, maybe those causes are represented in metaphor or maybe they're representative, represented in a vision. But if you, if you stay open and stay courageous in these experiences, successive doors continue to open until you arrive at this place, which is, as I'm sure you, you know, indescribable and has a lot of a lot of potential uh, benefits, not even just for not even for people that are sick, but for for well individuals. And the reason why I I relate it so much to to something like Bitcoin is because, and I'm sure we could you know feel free to expand on this, but very simply put, Bitcoin is a means of attaining, among other things, a means of attaining f- physical sovereignty, financial sovereignty. The you know that that's one of its core components, and for me psychedelics are about attaining conscious sovereignty of consciousness you know because it allows you to become more acutely aware of your conditioning of your emotional subconscious emotional responses all all the different things that you pick up through life and they kind of just they cement in your mind or they become latent or they become subconscious drivers and psychedelics allow you to for lack of a more simplistic term, see things clearly for the first time. And once you can do that, you can take back your conscious sovereignty from all the different influences, family, nation state, media, friends, society, culture that have influenced it as you emerged in the world and have, have grown up and gone through it. You, you're then able to, and that's painful, right? It can be because all of that stuff, we, we adopt it because it makes life easier, makes life more comfortable, makes our maneuvering through culture easier, less friction. And when you, when you take back your, your conscious sovereignty, then you have to rebuild it kind of from the ground up. And, you know, that's what we're doing with Bitcoin as well, right? We're, we have this tool to take back financial and physical sovereignty, but we are having to build it from the ground up because the, the culture and the system is not set up for, for, you know, using a tool like that. And so I really see a ton of overlap here. And, as you know, one of the things I guess that I'm hoping my influence might be in the space, and I, you know, I only bring it up when appropriate. But I, I just imagine this: a lot. You know how you mentioned a lot of us Bitcoiners try to explain it to people, and a lot of times it falls on deaf ears. And that's why you're saying we need to really expand the kind of analogies we use and where we meet people on whatever level they're at to try to to try to have that gravitational pull start pulling on them. Um, you know, what I, I think, imagine if you could tell a Bitcoiner, like, hey, there's this other thing out there in the world that is as equally difficult to explain, but is as equally as powerful and impactful, as meaningful as you find Bitcoin. And it's out there right now. And, I, and when I'm explaining it to you, you got to give me, you got to, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt that it's as, it's the same thing you feel when you're explaining Bitcoin to somebody else. That's how I feel when I'm trying to explain this thing to people because it, you know, it's it's one of those things that you can't accurately convey it in its to, in its totality. So, anyways, long-winded way of saying I think they're they're very similar in that they 
the, the, the kind of meaning and impact they represent and the sovereignty in different capacities, physical and conscious, that, that they could convey if properly used. I think that's fantastic what you just described. The parallels are astute. I think you're going to, I think that one's going to land. And what initially came up to me, um, a couple of things. One, I want to address the, the skeptics for a second, the people who say, my mind works fine. I don't need this. I am doing okay. I'm successful. Um, go sit down and try to meditate for 10 minutes. Just sit down, shut up and don't think. And you'll probably last about seven seconds and then your mind will start racing. Two minutes will go by and you'll be like, oh shit, I thought I was supposed to not think, right? Just as a simple exercise, pause and go do that. Um, and what do you learn from that? You learn that your mind, uh, you don't have as much control over your mind as you think. And if you allow your mind to just run its mouth all day long and chirp in your ear, you're being driven by something that is not you. And I know that's a hard concept, but your mind is not you right? Your mind is a part of you. And so in the same way that we don't really understand Bitcoin's true value from a financial aspect until you understand what's wrong with the current system, you can't really understand the power of psychedelics until you understand what's wrong with our current minds and what we pollute them with and how we allow them to drive us. And so, yeah, sound mind, sound body, if you want to use that kind of terminology, you need to have both. You know, if you're if you're simply sovereign over your physical realm, but you're in your mind, you're a prisoner. That's not going to lead to a fulfilling life, even if you have six point one five Bitcoin. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. So it's it's about it's about pursuing sovereignty in all capacities, in all areas, right? Not 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 just in the one. Um, have you completed part four yet? It's not published, right? Correct. So part three, I, dra I wrote and it was like 5,000 words. So I had to break it into two parts. It's sitting as I would say 70% complete draft. Um, I'm just not finding much time to write recently. And I think, you know, I got married a few days ago. And so hopefully this fall, thanks man, this fall and winter, uh, I'm, I'm living in Minnesota now after five years of traveling and we have bad winters. So usually the winter is when I huddle in and get a little bit more of my writing done. And so, yeah, it's sitting on the shelf. And so, you know, can you share kind of the angle that you're going to be taking with it? Yeah, definitely. So it's essentially, um, and it's actually timely uh, with Giroud's new, new, new piece on uh, Bitcoin as space money. But the essential concept is let's assume hyper Bitcoinization happens and we now share this one global money cleans up the financial markets, etc. cetera. Um, what kind of speculation can we look downstream? What, what is the real effect of this thing? And a lot of it's drawing on the concept of social scalability. So essentially just scaling our ability as humans to coordinate. And I see a glass ceiling right now where uh, we're sort of stuck in this nation state battle where we are part of nations who war over resources. And fundamentally, there are scarce resources, so we each fight for them. And I see Bitcoin as a way to shatter that glass ceiling and enable cooperation um, on a more global scale. And this could mean, I also subscribe to the sovereign individual thesis where we'll fracture into smaller nation states, uh, a little bit more specialized nation states. And without this overhead of these big corporations slash governments, um, sort of driving the ship. I do see a, a future with more, um, yeah, more scalability, more cooperation, go to space, um, actually implement um, changes led by the free market to make life better for humans, unlocking intellectual capital from people who are currently not participating in the global financial system. Um, yeah, just sort of pontificating on those and I'll try to weave in as much mushroom <sighs> knowledge as I can find on the topic. Um, yeah, Jeruv Bansal from Unchained Capital, maybe you saw his piece recently about um, post-hyper-Bitcoinization, how does Bitcoin head into the stars? And I would love to make one comment on that. Um, I'm a massive fan of Jeruv and, and his article, and we've been talking over email about it, and it gets me really excited. Um, but the most interesting thing that I took away is that there's this fundamental problem with humans exploring other, other stars. So space is really big, and it's pretty conceivable that in the next 100, 200 years, we'll colonize our solar system, assuming everything goes as planned. 
Um, but leaving our solar system to go to the nearest star is really far away. Even if we can travel really fast, um, it's still going to require cryogenic sleep. And essentially what that means is you're taking a massive risk to pop out on the other end and probably die. But there's not much reward even if you do survive. So what? You're the first guy to put a flag on another planet and you live this horrible life and you say goodbye to everyone you know? That's not a very good incentive. However, if the first person to arrive at a new star or a new planet is far enough away from Bitcoin's uh, field of hash, you essentially are the first person to seed a new proof-of-work currency, more or less an updated version of Bitcoin somewhere else. And then you get to be the Satoshi who mines the early blocks in a new place. And if your risk pays off, you also become extremely wealthy. So now all of a sudden, people are going to line up, load them in those <laughs> ships and shoot them everywhere. And now there's an incentive. So I thought yeah. that was a fun, fun thought exploring new worlds with for the chance of being satoshi <laughs> totally yeah you never know man if the future is going to be you know like you said stranger and terence said stranger than we can suppose so it's all it's all just fun speculation at this stage um, but one of the things you said i was actually out for a run yesterday and um you know a lot the a lot of people in the bitcoin space will often talk about one of the reasons why it's important to um you know, get on a different monetary standard is because um, governments throughout history have abused their control over the, the money supply and the monetary standard to uh, conduct war, right? This has happened throughout history. And as a, as a result of doing that too much and a result of abusing that power, the money supply, the monetary system is always debased. It's either, you know, metal coins were, were debased or the currency is inflated, or too much debt is taken on and there's eventually a collapse. You know, one of those three, or all of them. But, you, and, and, you know, you could make a very strong case that over in the 20th century and ongoing, the ability for the state to wage war has been amplified tremendously by basically them having an endless supply of, of money because most countries have central banks and, yes, they have to manage the currency so that it stays in a band in comparison with other international currencies, but they can more or less use, you know, print as much as they want or certainly enough to wage wars on countries that are, you know, far smaller economically. And I don't know if this holds up at all. So I'm, I just wanted to get your, your take on it. But aside from a, a non-manipulatable monetary standard being used and therefore not being able to have an endless supply of funds to, to, to fund a war effort, i.e. using a you know, hard money like Bitcoin. But I, I was wondering if the use of fiat money also promotes war in another way in that if we don't have, because I saw war as a proof of work, a type of proof of work. Because when I was a kid, I used to think like, or you're talking with your buddies, you're like, man, why is there wars? Why don't they just put the president of one country and the president of another country, put them in a ring, duke it out, and whoever wins, wins, right? And whoever wins, like, wins the dispute. And, well, the answer is because then the loser will be like, well, no, I can, I can put up a better fight, right? I can, I can collect the, 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 the collective resources and capacity and productive capacity of my nation and put it towards this effort. And then we're really seeing, okay, all your ability to, to do work, right? Your proof of work, collect all your citizenry, your natural resources, your productive capacity, everything. You put it on the table, I'll put mine. That's the only way we're really going to solve this and see who is the more powerful, who is, who is the victor. And I was kind of, so I was like, wow, war is a, a certain type of proof of work. And, you know, is that, does the prevalence of, of war, the frequency you know, increase if, or basically, do we outsource proof of work to war if we don't have it in our money? So if we have a money that doesn't act accurately or actually represent um, work, if it can just be kind of, you know, printed, you know, taken out of thin air, then do we have to outsource the real proof of work to war? And if we went back to a money that actually did represent proof of work, if, it, if we did actually have to devote a very specific and knowable amount of resources to obtaining 
this, this money and that it could not be manipulated or altered in any way, would we then not have to engage in the proof of work of war as often because the, 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 the proof of work, our productive capacity and the, the, the resources that we can bring to bear are literally represented in the money that we, that we control. Discuss. A um, couple of interesting points you had there. First one, um, sort of the idea where why don't the two kings fight each other and that solves it, sort of like the duel of champions instead of lose lives on the battlefield. Um, I, I think throughout history that happened occasionally, but I think it was mostly when two armies are very similar in size and there's not a clear winner. Because if you're obviously the superior army, you would never risk the chance that your champion loses. Right. right. But super interesting thought there with, with sort of skin in the game and a way to save lives and solve the conflict. Um, going back to money and war, what I find interesting there is that um, if money is scarce and you can't print it from a government's perspective, then essentially you have to collect money somehow. You have to fundraise to actually pay with purchasing power instead of funny money, pay with purchasing power for war, which is really expensive. And so... Um, instead of being able to do that, you have to most likely collect taxes from your people in some capacity. And so the individuals actually feel that war, uh, the cost of war, which if everyone understood what the true cost of the Middle East war um, for the United States was, I don't think anyone would have voted for it. In, in the same way where people say, hey, let's bring back the draft, because if the people who uh, financially benefit from war, if their son has a chance to go to war because it's just a, a, a drawing, then maybe people wouldn't want to go to war, right? As soon as you actually feel the burden, then humans are a little bit less interested. And so I think a, a Bitcoin world would decrease um, our ability to wage war, at least on the same scale. Um, however, I think there's another thing here where I think war is changing. And to go to your point about how um, either you have proof of work in the money or proof of work in the army. Um, I, I think that's super interesting. And I think that the proof of work in the army is now changing from actual the magnitude of your army to the sophistication of your technology. So things like cybersecurity and Stuxnet and hacking and um, economical warfare, which is what the U.S. is predominantly doing. Um, or like what the Soviet Union and Russia are known for, which is the psychological warfare. Um, I think that's sort of the war of the future. And so what's tricky is I think these wars are going to be going on, but they're going to be a little bit more covert. And I don't know if the I don't know how expensive they're going to be going forward, because where we're, where we're going to end up is that defense uh, through things like cryptography. Now the defender has the advantage. So small microstates theoretically could defend themselves through superior technology, whether it's drones or anti-aircraft anti things very cheaply or the ability to hack, um, the ability to retain their money, the ability to communicate um, secretly. All those things give the defender an advantage. And that all kind of maps nicely to the thesis and the sovereign individual. But I guess the long story short is that I think war is changing. Bitcoin eliminates war or decreases war, or at least requires the, the government to pay the full cost, which should decrease war. Um, yeah, right. But it's it's also another reason why there'll be resistance from the resistance from the incumbents, right? Because they'll they'll fully realize or do fully realize that that would represent a extremely significant check on their 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 power, right? Absolutely. I think they're too arrogant at this point to assume Bitcoin means anything, um, at least threatening from their perspective. And they're probably right, right? It, it, $200 billion, it's tiny. It, it is nothing. Um, but I think slowly people are waking up to the zeitgeist uh, or the, the reality of the zeitgeist that uh, includes Bitcoin now. It's, it's in the cultural conversation. Yeah. And it's, it's always interesting to speculate, you know, because it's, as, as they say, first slowly, then all at once, you know, it's this thing where just a bunch of geeks and nerds and you know all these people that we've been discussing come together and think this is really cool and it's dismissed it's dismissed it's dismissed and as with you you make the analogy with the mycelial network kind of just operating underground moving around resources waiting biding its time biding its time biding its time and then at some point that's almost impossible to predict 
the conditions are right and the, the mushrooms burst out of the ground with extreme force, say, hey, we're here now. And, you know, and then now then they disappear again. And that's kind of the growth cycle of Bitcoin. But I guess in this analogy, the point is just that, you know, it's nothing until it's it's really something. Definitely. And I, I think that's um, the timing of Bitcoin is really, really important here. It was born out of the last financial crisis. All the metaphors, all the early adherents support this idea. And the macro conditions couldn't be more perfect. Each time these nation states fuck up, Bitcoin's there like, great, we will offload this demand. Okay, this needs to happen. Great. Now information travels through the Bitcoin ecosystem and we need to build something to now do this other thing because our current system's failing. And I think the best case scenario is we just MMT ourselves into the ground and slowly over time, Bitcoin absorbs this and the parallel system eventually eclipses the dollar regime. And I, I think that would make a better world, right? If the transition's fast, it's going to be bad for a lot of people. Totally. I couldn't um, agree But that. if the transition's slow and, you know, it's just bit by bit, I think that's going to be a, a huge win for humanity. Yeah, I, I agree. I've mentioned it a couple times, but you know, a fast, jarring transition really doesn't serve the majority of people. You know, it'd be real ugly and really disruptive and cause a lot of pain. But if we can just have this little tugboat kind of traveling side by side and we're building it out and building it out, when the time comes, you just jump ship, then that would certainly be a smoother transition. And I think in, in everyone's best interest, you know. And the other thing with this stuff is, is I, we, we paint it as a as an ideological or other type of battle between like the state and the government and you know free individuals but obviously most people even that operate in the government are people just like you and I right we like to hang out with our friends and family and have good relationships and do work that's meaningful it's just that you know we've all wound up in different places in, in society and culture you know I, I don't I, I'm, I try to be careful with the kind of adversarial adversarial attitude right because at the end of the day <clears throat> this will serve everybody i don't get to choose who it serves it, it'll serve everybody i think it has the potential to benefit everybody and uh you know we're, ultimately we're all in this together we don't want to have a situation where there's winners and losers because then losers try to come back and be winners again we want to have a situation where we paint this as something that ultimately despite perhaps some discomfort perhaps a, a change in perspective and things of that nature that benefits uh, everybody. So, and I, I get involved in it too sometimes because, you know, the David versus Goliath sort of attitude, you know, grabs you and you're like, oh, we got to beat down this big monolithic thing. But, you know, that's, that's not exactly the case. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's also important to note that Bitcoin doesn't lead to a kumbaya scenario. Um, what Bitcoin is, is just the rules are fair. The rules are upfront. The rules are open. And this provides opportunity or an equal opportunity, right? Instead of an equal outcome, there is no equal outcomes. We don't want that. And so if the rules are fair, they're upfront, they're really hard to cheat and change. Special interests have a hard time co-opting Bitcoin. We've seen this demonstrated. I think that's going to continue. That's the most important thing of Bitcoin. The assurances are near guaranteed. And if that continues, then great. We have a new measuring stick for value. And the more value you create, the more money you get, and you get to keep your money. It doesn't disappear. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and you know, this comes up uh, sometimes with the distribution of Bitcoin, right? The people that, that were involved early on, Satoshi, and early people that were mining, and people saying like, well, isn't this unfair? Certain people have a huge portion of the money supply. And, you know, I, I, I understand that criticism because those people will have an inordinate amount of power and influence um, if this becomes you know, a global monetary standard. But it's not like it wasn't fair. These people were, had the curiosity and the intellectual capacity and, and the, took the risk to be involved with their time or their resources early. I mean, I can't, I mean, what, what, what would have been more fair? Giving every man, woman, and child the same amount? Like, I, I don't think that would have been a more beneficial outcome. And it wouldn't have allowed for it to grow anyways. 
And even if you did give the equivalent of Bitcoin per person, most people would get rid of it immediately. Other people would lose it because they don't value it. And you'd end up right back with the same ideological motivated people in the beginning collecting it all, right? Until it had value, um, you're really just playing an ideological game. And yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is the most fair money we've ever had. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Um, did Satoshi try really hard to make it as fair as possible? I think so. Um, I think every coin after Satoshi, in no fault of their own, but they can't make it as fair right. because the genie's out of the bottle. And, you know, I got into some fights with some Ethereans recently about the genesis of Ethereum versus Bitcoin. And, and their position is essentially that Ethereum did as good of a job as they could have making their distribution fair. And I think that's probably true. Um, you know, they did have a pre-mine, they sold, the founders created money out of thin air and sold money before there was anything to sell. So there's some critiques there, but under the circumstances, they made a fair shot. But even if it was the most fair at the time, it's nowhere near as fair as uh, Satoshi's launch. Yeah. And so, Well, yeah. as, as, as you say, the genie's out of the bottle and, and that, that amazing Hayek quote where he says, you know, some sly roundabout way you only get one shot at it, right? So that, that sly roundabout way, the cherry on the top would have been him saying, but it'll only happen once. You know, that would have been real, really prescient of him. But I mean, it was already extremely uh, prescient. But yeah, I, I think you're right. So I don't think it could have happened differently. Um, Brandon, I'm going to break into the rapid fire stuff now, unless you have anything else you want to break into uh, first. Uh, only the one point that I keep trying to stress right now is that biology is technology. We are of biology, but biology has already solved all the design problems, all the engineering problems. So if you're stuck on a hard problem, look to nature. And if you have the right tools to understand what's going on around you, they're probably going to find some answers to the hard problems that we already have. Yeah. And I think if you're, if you're looking for other perspectives or way of articulating and seeing things um, just to kind of shake up your own understanding or your traditional ways of understanding things. Um, Terrence McKenna does talk about that a lot, that technology is nature, we are nature, and a lot of very interesting concepts around those things. And he's just, you know, probably, possibly the best orator uh, ever, you know, he's extremely compelling to listen to. And um, I don't know if many in the Bitcoin community are familiar with them, probably more than I assume. But if you're looking for uh, a different way of looking at technology, then he, he's got some great talks. Wholeheartedly agree. He has the best grasp of the English language out of anyone I've ever come across. Um, well, man, look, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. And uh, I want to do that sometime. So maybe in, in three to six months after your part four is put out, we can uh, get together again and and dig in further to some of these concepts. But until then, uh, good luck with the writing. I know it's not always easy and uh, wish you the best and look forward to uh, connecting in the future. Appreciate it. Fantastic conversation. Love your podcast. This thing's going to go fast. I can feel it. Thanks a lot, brother. Take care of yourself.